This morning we're beginning a series I'm calling Lessons on Leadership from the Book of Nehemiah. Today's message is called The Making of a Leader. When we talk about leaders, we're talking about strong leaders. Strong leaders in our nation, strong leaders in business, strong leaders in our church, strong leaders in each family. There are few things needed in life today more than strong leaders. And there are some exciting principles in the book of Nehemiah. This book is going to be our textbook. You've probably heard about the pun that Nehemiah, he is known as the shortest man in the Bible because he's called Nehemiah. A couple of people got that. But there is so much more. By Nehemiah's example, we're going to learn principles of stewardship, leadership. Let me start off with four points about leadership. Please take out the sermon notes that have been prepared for you today. In the introduction, we start off with four points as why we should be looking at these principles, at the laws of leadership in the book of Nehemiah. Number one, in your notes, nothing happens until someone provides leadership. Nothing happens until someone provides leadership. It's a law of life. Just look at history. Civil rights movement was nothing until along came a man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. He said, I have a dream, and he provided leadership. The space program was nothing until a man by the name of John Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. He provided leadership and vision. A man came along by the name of Ray Crook. He, he, went fat, he, wanted, he said, I want fast food at a convenient price and a clean atmosphere. So he invented the entire industry called fast food and McDonald's. As a congregation, we know that many pastors and teachers, laymen and women, have provided leadership over the last 166 years to help this church grow. And in your family, when you have problems, nothing happens until someone in the family assumes leadership, says we're going to do something about it. See, most problems can be traced back to a lack of leadership. And the greatest problem today is a leadership shortage. The greatest need is trained leaders. Just ask the nominating committee of any congregation that has been working and continues to work, the staff, the many leadership positions in any church. In the book of Judges, there are seven cycles where the children of Israel will go up and then down, up and down. And the last verse in the book tells us why. In Judges 21, verse 25, in your notes, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Where there's no leadership, then people just do their own thing. And there is instability. And families have instability when each one does his own thing. There's a lack of leadership. The second point in your introduction, number two, leadership is influence. Simply stated, leadership is influence. That's a one-word definition of leadership. There's influence for good, and influence for bad. They're positive leaders. 
They're negative leaders. You watch kids on the playground at school for five minutes, and you know who the leaders are. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. You sat in a committee before, figured out who the leader was, and often it was not the chairman, the person with the most influence, the person to whom people keep looking to for answers. Every time you influence someone, you're assuming leadership. So look at what Paul says, tells Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Paul says, Set an example for all believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. See, the fact is that you are called to be a model, whether you like it or not. So in your notes, everybody is called to be a leader. Everybody in this church is a leader. We're called to lead in different places and different times. Anytime you influence somebody, you are a leader. And the issue is not if you are a leader. The issue is whether or not you're a good one. You are a leader in your family. You're a leader at home, at school, at work. So I've printed a biblical definition of a leader. In your notes, a leader is someone with God-given ability to influence a group of God's people to accomplish God's purpose. A leader is someone with God-given ability to influence a group of people of God to accomplish God's purpose. So Nehemiah is an outstanding example in the Bible. Nehemiah accomplished much at incredible odds in a brief time because he was a good leader. Point number three, foundation of leadership is character. The foundation of leadership is not charisma, but rather it's character. There was a number of TV evangelists who had great charisma, but they bombed out because they had no character. They had character defects. In order to lead, you need to have character. Leadership is influence. If you don't have credibility, then no one's going to follow you. And one of the tests of a leader, is there anybody following? If you want to know whether you are a leader or not, just look over your shoulder. And Jesus said in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice. And they know them. They follow me. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And imitate. Imitate their faith. There are three characteristics of good leaders then. There are leaders who are not very ordinary people. But accomplish extraordinary things. Simply because they have character. The first characteristic of a good leader in your notes, number one, they have a message worth remembering. They have a message, a word from God worth remembering. So remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Secondly, number two, they have a lifestyle worth considering. They have a lifestyle worth considering. Does their walk match their talk? Does their life match what they say they are? And then number three, they have a faith worth imitating. We are to imitate their faith. So if you want to be a good leader, then you need to develop a message worth remembering, a lifestyle worth considering, a faith worth imitating. That's all character, the foundation of leadership. Point number four in your notes. 
Leadership can be learned. Leadership can be learned. If that weren't true, there would be no purpose for the book of Nehemiah. It's a textbook on leadership. Every one of you can become a great leader. You can be a good influence for Christ and for his church. Paul says in Philippians 4, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. See, the fact is that leaders are made, not born. There's no such thing as a born leader. Leaders are made by the way they respond to circumstances. People see wash out of leadership because of the choices they make. And it's interesting to note that Jesus, he trained his leadership team himself. Jesus called out his 12 disciples. Even among those 12, there was that inner circle. Jesus had public ministries and he had private ministry. His public ministry involved his preaching and teaching and healing. But Jesus' private ministry involved training his disciples. In fact, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, became, according to Paul and Galatians, they became the pillars of the church. Now, Jesus fed the masses, but he spent most of his time training leadership. Leadership can be learned. Every leader is a learner. The moment a leader stops learning, he stops leading. When the pastor stops growing, the church stops growing. So Nehemiah was a leader who spent a lifetime growing and learning. God prepared Nehemiah. God used Nehemiah. And God used others whom Nehemiah taught. God is preparing you also. And God wants to use you and your family, in your church, and in your business. We want to look back at the background to the story of Nehemiah. Starting with Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. In your notes. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. So when I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. On the back of your notes, the background includes where, the problem, when, and Nehemiah's occupation. So number one, when. In your notes, write this down. It was 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed. And the Jews were all deported and exiled to Babylon. Now Babylon is now what we call Iraq. They would, have, they would be kept there for 70 years. But then in 537 B.C., in your notes, the first group of Jews were allowed to return. Then in the year 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. In 458 B.C., Ezra then led a second group of Jews back to Jerusalem. And in your notes, Nehemiah asked permission. He asked permission to return with a third group in the year 445 B.C. So it was 445 B.C. when Nehemiah asked permission to return. Number two, where? Where is this all happening? And it's happening in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And number three, 
next. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that the city walls needed rebuilding. The city walls needed to be rebuilt. Some of you are saying, what's the big deal? Why does the city need walls anyway? Nobody builds a city today with walls around it. You may build houses and put a fence around and gates around it, but not a city. Today we use other means to protect our cities. But in biblical times, when an enemy came against a city with walls, it would actually take months or even years to break it down. So it was important to have walls. So the first group had been given permission to rebuild the temple, but not the walls. The city was still in ruins. The walls were all falling down. They were in rubble. And there were two results. First, the people were defenseless. And robbers could come in. They were defenseless to their attacks. But secondly, because they were defenseless, the people were also discouraged. And they were defeated. The first thing an army would do in those days when they would conquer a city was to tear down their walls. It was a symbol of defeat. And you were helpless. So the walls torn down was a disgrace to the people of God in Jerusalem. It said that God had somehow forsaken them. The city walls needed rebuilding. There was a need for a leader. So God raised up Nehemiah for his situation. Number four in your notes. Nehemiah was also living in exile. Heard about the wall of Jerusalem. Broken down, its gates had been burned. Nehemiah himself is writing this book. This is sort of a personal account of a leader. It's his journal, what's happening to him. So he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See in your notes, the occupation. The occupation of Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Nehemiah for a living was a cupbearer to the king. King's name is called Artaxerxes, which means great ruler. In other places, he's known as Darius the Mede, which in the, what, what in the world, however, is a cupbearer. A cupbearer is the second most important position in the kingdom. He was a combination of a prime minister, bodyguard, personal security agent, assistant to the king. See, Nehemiah was the person whom trusted by the king. Cupbearer would taste the wine before the king would drink so that he would not be assassinated. So Nehemiah had to be absolutely trustworthy, absolutely loyal as a Jew and a foreigner, to be second in command in Persia. It is strange how God gets his people in just the right position at the right time for his purpose. When his brother came back from Jerusalem, which was about a two-month trip from the desert, through the desert, his brother Hanani, said that it was all bad news. The people are in the pits. All their relatives are discouraged. They are depressed. The temple was rebuilt, but the walls, they're in ruin. Nehemiah sat down and wept. He fasted. He prayed for about four months. He is saddened by these things. So we want to look at three reasons then why God would choose Nehemiah as a leader. The first reason... I think that God chose Nehemiah. In your notes, number one, because Nehemiah was sensitive. Nehemiah was sensitive to the needs around him. When you think about it, Nehemiah's reaction is really incredible. Nehemiah has it made, personally. He is at the peak of his career. 
he is living on easy street. He was second best position in the kingdom. He has a great salary. And he doesn't have to rock the boat. The problems over there in Jerusalem must have seemed like a million miles away. In fact, Nehemiah probably had never even seen Jerusalem. He was born in exile in Babylon. But when he hears about God's people, how God's people are being depressed, discouraged, defeated, he takes it seriously. This is the first leadership insight from Nehemiah. Leaders are sensitive to the needs of the people around them. Now, living in the United States, we have it made. Most of the world around us would like to have our problems. Their problems are, well, I have food tonight to feed my, to feed my family. We're, we're always worried about such things that, well, my shoes match my purse. Nehemiah, he was sensitive to the needs of the people. In your notes, God uses people then who care. God uses people who care about the same things that God cares about. And God cared about the fact that the walls of Jerusalem, they were broken down. And because God cared about it, Nehemiah cared about it. That made him a leader, made him God's leader. Leaders care about the things that God cares about. Number two in your notes, the second reason why God chose Nehemiah was that he was dependable. Nehemiah was sensitive and he was dependable. He had a proven track record. He was so trustworthy that he gave him the task of being his cup bearer. In your notes, leaders need that proven track record. And Jesus talks about that, a testing of our faithfulness to see if we, he will use us also or not. Just look at Luke chapter 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So Nehemiah, he was sensitive. Nehemiah was dependable. And number three in your notes, Nehemiah, he was available. Yeah, he was available. He volunteered. When the situation needed a leader, he volunteered. Here, God, send me. He was not even a contractor, but he volunteered. He volunteered to rebuild the walls 100 miles away. He didn't have the skill. Nehemiah was sensitive. He was dependable. He was available. So in conclusion, we want to apply this teaching to our own lives. God is not looking for abilities in leaders as much as he is looking for number one in your notes. God is looking for credibility. God wants character and credibility. Number two in your notes, God is looking for dependability. God is looking for dependability. And number three, God is looking for availability. Those qualities are a matter of your choice. Are you choosing to grow in character? Are you sensitive to people? Are you dependable? Can God rely on you? See, dependability is much more important than abilities. Are you available? Yes, I would be happy to do it, we say, for the Lord, but you have to fit it in between 5.30 and 6.15 before I meet with my friends at the gym. Jesus himself was God's perfect sinless son who came into this world as a servant, 
as a servant leader. He had a ministry of highest credibility as he was preaching, teaching, and healing. Jesus willingly suffered and died for our sins. Through his death, you and I have received the gift of eternal life. Jesus is dependable. Jesus was available. In the words of the hymn, Christ be my leader by day and by night, safe through the darkness, for he is the way. Daily I follow my future his care. Darkness is daylight when Jesus is there. Amen.